Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have the honor of speaking today with a friend and colleague with whom I work on a regular basis, Dr. J. Bradley Creed. I'll call you Brad, you call me Timothy, okay? We'll do that. Brad is the provost of Sanford University. That's the chief academic officer for all of our academic programs and schools here at Sanford. And as such, he gives leadership to the entire university. He has a background, however, in history, and that's really the focus of our conversation today. Brad, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you, Timothy. It's a pleasure being here this afternoon, and uh, I want to commend you for what you're doing with these podcasts. Uh, it's certainly in keeping with the mission of the Divinity School, but uh, at Sanford, we're we're delighted to have Beeson as one of our eight schools, a very important constituent part of, of what we're all about as a university. Thank you so much. Now, I say you're a historian. Tell us a little bit about your own background. You're a Texan, I believe, right? I am. And as a matter of fact, today, when we're taping this, it's April the 21st, and all good Texans will know this is San Jacinto Day. Ah. And that's when things turned around, and I've already had a, a plate of Tex-Mex food today <laughs> in commemoration of the occasion. I'm from East Texas, a town called Jacksonville, and uh, was raised in a Christian family, made a profession of faith when I was 11. I felt a calling to ministry, attended Baylor University, Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth with two degrees, where my Ph.D. was in the uh, history of Christianity. I've been a pastor, a church planner. I've been an academic as well. So I think my sense of calling is both to the academy and the church. I'd pastored a church in Louisiana and then in 1993 was invited to go to Baylor to help Baylor University to help start a new academic unit, the George W. Truett Theological Seminary, which became the ninth school in the Baylor University system. Went there as an associate dean, became the dean, served a total of eight years. Uh, did a, a brief stint uh, on a sabbatical as a scholar in residence at the Baptist Joint Committee on Public Affairs and taught at the John Leland Theological Center in Falls Church, Virginia. And then came here to Samford in the summer of 2001 to be the chief academic officer, the provost. So 10 years ago. This is your 10th anniversary. 10 years it is, coming up. Wonderful. Now, you mentioned studying at Southwestern. I I know you studied with two great historians, both of whom meant a lot to me, uh, one of whom still living, I think. Talk a little bit about these two great figures in Baptist history. Uh, Bill Estep. Bill Estep, William R. Estep, originally from Kentucky, was um, a scholar of the Radical Reformation. And his book, published by Erdman's The Anabaptist Story, really helped bring that neglected aspect of the Reformation to a wider educated audience. It was a bestseller. And um, I actually traveled to Europe with Dr. Estep on a Reformation study tour, went to some of the Luther sites in 1982, uh, before the so-called Iron Curtain came down in East Germany. And that was a remarkable experience. And he was a man who was a gifted scholar, but a very sincere Christian, worked with mission churches, and he had quite a, an influence on me. Another person with whom I studied was, was Leon Macbeth, yeah. who's written a magnum opus on Baptist history, and he is still living in, in Texas. And then a, a third person who spanned both history and theology was James Leo Garrett, yes. who's taught at yeah. a number of Baptist institutions. 
I first met Dr. Garrett when I was an undergraduate student at Baylor. He headed up the uh, J.M. Dawson Institute of Church and State Studies, mm. and I had him for some undergraduate courses. And he went to teach at Southwestern the year that I became a master's student there and had him for a number of courses, including Ph.D. seminars. I had two seminars on uh, Augustine. Uh-huh. Uh, from church history under James yeah. Leo Garrett. So I'm grateful for um, the leadership of those three scholars in my life. Now I want to talk about a talk you gave, a paper, actually a speech that you made here at Sanford University. Uh, it has a fascinating title, Yankee Ingenuity and the Grace of God, Portraits of Three Antebellum Baptists. Now that's a mouthful. Tell us what you mean by Yankee ingenuity and the grace of God, and who are these three Baptists we're going to talk about today? Well, living where we do in the South, it's a little bit dangerous to talk about Yankee ingenuity. (laughs) There were several things that I wanted the title to suggest. Um, These three people, John Leland, Ann Judson, and Francis Whalen, lived and ministered and worked in a very formative period of Baptist history in the United States. They all three were from New England. I use the word ingenuity because they were all innovators in their own ways. They were pace setters. They went where nobody else had been before and left their mark. And, of course, it wasn't just about human ingenuity. All three of these were were committed Christians, committed to Christ, and were Mm. Baptist Christians. They understood their uh, living out of the New Testament faith in that communion and attributed all that they did whether it was uh, working for political change or doing ministry to people in Burma or uh, leading institutions like a major university, they attributed their strength to the working of God's grace in their lives. And so I wanted to highlight this period of history and use these three people as emblematic and representative portraits. We're going to talk about each one of them. Now, those of us who live here at Beeson have the privilege of worshiping in Hodges Chapel. And there is in the dome of our chapel 16 figures from the history of the Christian church from the 2nd to the 20th century. And in that great cloud of witnesses, as we call it, there is a portrait of John Leland. Now, I know you, I think, did your dissertation on John Leland. I did. Tell us about who he really was and how he came to be such a figure in Baptist history. John Leland was born in 1754 in New England and lived a rich and wonderful life, uh, died in uh, 1841. Uh, As he would say, these were his terms, and uh, I think this was one of the keys to his effectiveness as a leader. He was a colorful speaker. He used picturesque Hmm. language. His mother was a high-flying, new-light churchman, Ah. which is to say that she was influenced by that movement that we call the First Great Awakening. Uh, She came out of a Congregationalist background, and many of those Christians that were converted in the First Great Awakening were Congregationalists, and they often separated from the established church and uh, often found that the journey of faith was leading them in more Baptistic directions to the extent that they would practice believers' baptism, or they would join forces with existing Baptists. Mm. So it was an interesting amalgam of groups during that very uh, fermentive and formative period of, of American uh, history. Uh, Leland grew up in that background and was converted at age 18 and felt that he was being called to be a preacher of the gospel. 
He was married in 1776, just a few months before the colonies declared independence. And by the end of that year, he and his wife had relocated to Virginia, where he would stay for 14 years. And there he would serve churches as pastor, but also worked as an itinerant evangelist or minister. Now, we probably know him best because he joined together with other Virginia Baptists to remonstrate or to plead for certain basic religious and civil liberties that were not afforded to all the citizens of of that colony and later that state. Um, The Anglican Church was established in that state, and to be a Baptist or another dissenter was to be outside the law. It meant that you were forced to pay taxes to support a church that in good conscience you could not. And in some places, these were exceptions, uh, fortunately, but it did happen. Baptists were ostracized. Uh, Sometimes they were thrown in jail for violating the law and assembling. And into that environment, Leland came and worked with Baptists to enact laws that would make um, religious liberty more widespread and give these kinds of rights and privileges to all dissenters. And that's probably what we know him best for and the kind of associations with major American political figures that he made during that period of time, those 14 years in Virginia. And that would include people like James Madison, Thomas Jefferson. What what was his relationship with that uh, group of early founders. Right. Well, uh, he we know that, that he was familiar with Madison. They corresponded. There, there's a legendary story. It's hard to separate legend from actual historical fact. It goes back to the Constitutional Convention, uh, and delegates from the states were elected to that. Uh, Leland lived in northern Virginia with, with other Baptists, and um, the Baptists and some other dissenters were a little concerned that the proposed Constitution did not have sufficient guarantees for religious liberty. Uh, those eventually became part of the Bill of Rights that we know today. And uh, Madison was going to run as a delegate. He was uh, a, a wealthy platter and well-known, well-respected. Uh, but the, the Baptists were becoming more numerous all the time through their growth. And uh, there was a campaign to run Leland against Madison so that Leland would be the delegate and therefore be a stronger stronger advocate for religious liberty. Um, supposedly, Leland and Madison met. Uh, there's a marker along a road in Virginia that commemorates that meeting. We do know they corresponded. But after their conversation at the end of the day or correspondence over a period of time, Madison had convinced Leland that if he, Madison, were elected as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, he would work to ensure a Bill of Rights that established religious liberty for all people. And Leland, being very well respected and well known among the Baptist leaders and others, basically gave assurance to his colleagues, his brothers and sisters, that Madison was the man and threw his support behind him. The actual Bill of Rights didn't come about until later because by the time uh, Madison was elected, uh, the the Constitution that was presented as it was did not have that. But Madison was later elected to Congress and went back and was instrumental in a Bill of Rights being uh, attached to the United States Constitution, the supreme law of the land. So he was passionate about religious liberty, and he also had a sense that Christians have an important witness to make in what we call today the public square. They do. And uh, this was certainly one way that he made that witness. He took it a little bit further, though. 
After 14 years in Virginia, he returned to his native New England and settled in the Berkshire Hills in western Massachusetts in the little community called Cheshire. And there he had the same kind of ministry. He was at the church there. He itinerated and preached revivals. But he also ran for the state legislature in the Massachusetts House. So here was Leland, a pastor, a preacher, but also an elected representative. Now, even though there was um, no established federal church in the United States with the Constitution being passed, that did not prohibit individual states from sponsoring established churches that were supported by public tax monies. The last state-established church to go away was in Massachusetts, and that was in the year 1833. Many of your listeners might not be aware of that. And so that was one of Leland's causes that he advocated when he was in the legislature there. And so he served a term or two in the state house. Mm -hmm. But to the end of his day, especially as an older man writing in his journals, the things that he reflected upon and wanted to be remembered for were not that he was instrumental in passing legislation that affected all of the United States or that he knew public figures like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, but that he had baptized over a thousand converts and Mm. preached, I forgot how many sermons he recorded, and and had had influence over X number of Baptist pastors, and Mm -hmm. that was his fundamental calling as a preacher of the gospel. He was a hymn writer, too, wasn't he? He was a hymn writer, and um, he was a man who had the common touch. I think this was a key to his effectiveness. He could speak in the vernacular. He could connect with the shopkeeper and the yeoman farmer and the the mother who had her domestic responsibilities by the kinds of sermons that he preached. But he also wrote hymns that spoke to people in kind of their heart language. So he was a very talented man uh, who had a very common touch but could walk with kings as well. That's great. Now, I want to get to your next two figures who are so important also, but Before we leave Leland, I've got to get you to tell the story of Leland and the Cheese. (laughs) Okay. It's legendary. Uh, I first read about this in in an old journal on agricultural history. Um, You know, anytime a president's inaugurated, it's quite an affair, and uh, gifts from far and wide will come to the White House. Uh, A most unusual gift during the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson was a mammoth cheese that weighed about two tons. Wow. It came from Cheshire, Massachusetts, where Leland lived. Leland, in order to show his support and appreciation to the new president, gathered the local dairy farmers there, and a blacksmith constructed a cheese press. You can see a replica of it in the town of Cheshire today. And uh, it was a community project. The, uh, The cheese was pressed. It was cured. It was loaded on wagon and sled and river barge and sloop and went all the way to Washington, D.C. And uh, Leland there was was there to greet the cheese and to present it to the president. Now, while he was there, I don't know the exact details of this, but Leland also made an address to a joint session of Congress. And uh, it was a time to honor Jefferson. But Leland bragged that... No milk from any Federalist cow had gone into the making of this cheese, Jefferson being a what we would call now a Jeffersonian Republican. Right, right. And those were Leland's political sentiments. And later, he was an ardent supporter of Andrew Jackson and the, the Democratic Party. He lived a long time, didn't he? He, he did, up until his 80s. But uh, they say that cheese stayed in the White House uh for over a year, and finally it, it got to smelling like an aged cheese would, and somebody went uh, and dumped it in the Potomac River. <laughs> but um, that, that's a little sidelight to, to John Lee. That's a great story. 
Now let's go on and talk a little bit about Ann Hazeltine Judson. Uh, those of us who live in Alabama know we have a Baptist college in this state named for her, Ann Hazeltine Judson. Uh, so tell us who she was and why she was so important in the development of the Baptist story in the 19th and even now to the present day. Well, she's a remarkable and inspirational woman, a pace setter in many ways, uh, one of those Yankees of ingenuity uh, who certainly believed and lived out the grace of God. She was born in 1789 after the Revolution in uh, Bradford, Massachusetts. Uh, probably what was interesting and unusual about her for that time is that her father insisted that uh, all of his daughters be educated. Hmm. And that was unusual back then. She attended the Bradford Academy and read theology books on her own and became very proficient with languages. Uh, She was converted when she was 16. She was part of a Congregationalist church and mentioned that the reading of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress Hmm. was really influential in her life. Her life took a providential turn when a, a young man... Uh, came and visited her church in Bradford to appeal for foreign mission support. He had committed his life to the cause, and he dined at the Hasseltine home. They were the kind that had the visiting preacher over. And this normally loquacious and outgoing young man seemed to be kind of awestruck and rather quiet. Uh, he was just bowled over by her beauty and her mm. presence. And it's a classic love story. Um He couldn't say much to her that evening, but they corresponded by letter and were married in February of 1812, and his name was Adoniram Judson. Mm. And um, he basically, and talk about a romantic proposal, he wrote her a proposal letter with the rather stark statement that marrying him meant her leaving her home forever and moving to the other side of the world. And that is indeed what happened. Uh, There was a consecration service in her home church there, uh, in Massachusetts. And um, there's some, some wood etchings of that. Luther Rice, another important figure out of history, was there. And these were Congregationalists who sent these young people to be missionaries uh, to the East. They were headed towards Burma. Um, the, the Judsons realized, though, that on the passage to Burma, they would stop over in India and meet the legendary English Baptist missionary named William Carey. And our host of this program, Dr. George, knows a little bit about mm-hmm. William Carey. He's written a marvelous little book about that. They knew that Brother Carey was a Baptist and believed in believer's baptism. They both, this is Adoniram, Judson, and Anne on board the ship. They had a lot of time. Studied their Greek New Testaments independently. And as they tell the story, came to the conclusion that believer's baptism was what the New Testament taught. So they got to India and basically told William Carey that they had become impressed by and convinced of Baptist principles and sought believers' baptism in a local Baptist church. And so here were these evangelical Congregationalists who went a step further and became Baptist. There was a little problem, though. The Congregationalist Board of Missions had sent them and underwritten their support. Luther Rice went through this same experience and figured out that he was going to have to go back to the United States and now work not among the Congregationalists, but among the Baptists, to raise support for this bold and um, adventure or or venture into foreign missions. And that's indeed what happened. So for a while, the Judsons went on their savings as they traveled to Burma to take the gospel to these people, not knowing if they were going to have support from the states. And so that was quite a step of faith, but a step that they took based upon convictions conscience and principle. Now, looking back on it now, we could say, wouldn't it have been a better strategy if 
They could have forgotten some of these denominational distinctives and just pooled their resources and had one great missionary effort to, to Burma and India. But, of course, we can see that out of this time of denominational tension and difference, many good things came for both the Baptists and the Congregationalists. So uh, it's an interesting way in which history takes different turns. Now, they had a long and productive ministry, didn't they, in, in Burma? They did. Say a little bit about that. I know uh, Judson was imprisoned uh, for a while for his witness for the gospel, and Anne was such a important supporter to him and to others who had gone along. Yeah, I think two things about their ministry will, will impress those who, who learn about it. One is the, the incredible hardships and suffering that they faced, but then also the way that God prospered them. Uh, and those two things often go together in the Christian life. Anything worth doing uh, has a burden with it, and um, anything that's of God involves a cross to bear, and that was certainly true with them. Um, they they both faced terrible diseases. They had all the tropical diseases that you can imagine and lost several children. In fact, right before they got to Burma, they were in harbor ready to go ashore uh, her first child was stillborn, and she was weak from the experience and physically ravaged and, and was brought ashore to this foreign and strange land. Um, her husband, Adoniram, as you mentioned, was locked in, in, a very, uh, in, a, in a desperate prison situation under very cruel and abject circumstances. And there were several times when he almost lost his life. He was slated for execution. But through her persuasiveness and her determination and the connections that she had made with important people, uh, the wives of viceroys, for example, she was able to, to win stays of execution and preserve his, his life. And uh, it, it was a horrible situation in which they found themselves. I think one of the most interesting stories that, that comes out of the prison experience is that Adoniram Judson preached the gospel, but I think one of his greatest contributions was the work that he did in translation. Mm. And so he carried on a great tradition that was started with Wycliffe and Tyndall and Luther and people like that and translated into the Burmese language and later the Siamese language as well. Um, and brought him a pillow for comfort in prison. And what the prison officials did not know is that the the paper that uh, made up the translation that he was working on for the Burmese Bible was hidden in that pillow. Well, when he was taken away from that prison to another prison, in kind of what I call the equivalent of the Bataan Death March mm. one time, the pillow was left behind, and he feared that all of that work that he had done was lost. This represented years of work in which he worked with the original languages. He was quite a linguist. I'm speaking of Hebrew and Greek now. Yeah. Well, fast forward a year or so later. A, a compassionate pagan jailer had saved that pillow only because he thought that it represented a token of his wife's love and care for him. And so when Adoniram Judson was released from prison, this jailer had kept that pillow and presented it to him, not knowing that the the heart of his Burmese translation of the Bible was hidden away in that pillow. What a great story. And that's an amazing story. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Anne herself was very adept at languages. She helped with that translation, and she mastered both Burmese and Siamese. And one, one of the ways we know some of these interesting stories you're sharing with us is from the diary of Anne Judson, which was a bestseller in the 19th century all across the Christian world. So she was a great writer, a great diarist, 
Her life ended tragically, though, didn't it? Tell us a little bit about that. It did. Uh, as I mentioned, the hardships that, that she had. There, there was one time when she was separated from her husband for six months when he was on a, a missionary journey uh, out and about. Another time he became deathly ill with, with a pulmonary disease, perhaps tuberculosis, and had to come back to the United States and to England. And while he was there, he raised money. But he was away from her for two and a half years. After these years of privation and hardship, she finally succumbed to disease and, and died. And the people revered her and loved her and buried her there. And you can still go to the site today where she's buried. Understand that the river has changed course several times and eroded the banks, and they've even moved her grave back to preserve it. So she is honored by the Mermese people, certainly for her Christian commitment, but as as a pioneering cross-cultural woman. She, in some sense, was one of the first post-colonial missionaries because mm. she learned the language of the people. She dressed in their native dress. And, and just did things that, you know, to the sensibilities of 19th century people in New England would have been somewhat scandalous. She was called by one early 20th century American historian, the woman of the century, mm. speaking of the 19th century. There are very few, if any, 19th century biographies of women written in that century. And Hasseltine Judson, however, is the exception. And as you said, her letters were published in newspapers in the United States and in Great Britain. And so they certainly, both of them, exerted an influence uh, through that ministry of correspondence. He lived many years after her and, and lived through two more wives and became legendary in, in what he did. So the, the two of them together cast a great shadow for the kingdom of God and for Christian missions in the 19th century. We're almost out of time, but I want to give a few minutes now to your third figure, Francis Wayland. He may be a little less well-known today to some of uh, those who follow Baptist history, uh, but he was in his own day a really significant educator, pastor, theologian. Tell us who Francis Wayland was and why we should remember him today. Well, there is a connection with the Judsons. Uh, Francis Wayland was a writer, among other things, and he wrote what was at the time the definitive biography of Adoniram Judson, and of course Anne, his wife, figured prominently in that. Uh, and so Whalen, among other things, was a great promoter of foreign missions here in the United States. He was born in 1796. All three of these people were born in the 18th century, and he lived until 1865. So as an older man, lived through the earliest days of the, the Civil War. He was born in New York. His parents had um, migrated there from England three years earlier and uh, graduated from Union College. He studied medicine for a while and then abandoned that to study for the ministry. He later served as a teacher at his alma mater, which is Union College, and then was called as a very young man to be the, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of, of Boston, which was a prominent pulpit at that time, and, and gained widespread recognition for some of his sermons. Wayland was not the public speaker that Leland was. Mm. He was more known as a writer, but, you know, carefully crafted thoughts and very influential through his writings and in his sermons. I think people had a lot more toleration for learned, thoughtful sermons at that time than we do in our day and age when we have short attention spans with all the, the media diversions that we have. As a very young man, though, uh, from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Boston, he ascended to the presidency of Brown University 
and and there served over I think a total of, uh, of maybe about twenty seven years, and uh, Brown was a university at that time that had great support from the Baptist. In fact, it was started as Rhode Island College in the state of Rhode Island with a great uh, a great deal of help from Baptist in in Pennsylvania. Eventually, became known as Brown University. Uh, aside from um, his involvement in Baptist life, Whalen is one of the most significant reformers of higher education in the 19th century. To, to put it in a nutshell, he moved college education from the gentlemanly study of the classics to a more practically oriented approach to education that matched what he believed were the opportunities being presented in this new nation. He nevertheless kept things rooted in the liberal arts and didn't do away with those. Instead, just expanded some of the concerns of of the university. For example, he had more flexible entrance requirements and introduced new courses into the curriculum, like what we would call today economics and modern foreign languages. He uh, allowed for a limited system of elective courses. And the thing that was probably most hard for the faculty that Whalen pushed was he told the faculty that they had to get rid of their lecture notes. They couldn't give the same old stale lectures. He did not allow textbooks into the classroom sometime because, as was the practice, they would often read from those. So he wanted students to learn how to think and professors to be able to dialogue with them. He wrote probably what was the best-selling textbook of the 19th century, certainly in the area of moral philosophy. We would call that today ethics. Mm -hmm. And that was the capstone course in many of these these, uh, universities, and often the president taught the capstone course. So this is how his... His Christian convictions and his belief in in the natural law, a greater law that's been revealed by God, came together in this this kind of course. And uh, at Brown in those days, there were there were compulsory chapels and religious life was there. But he was a great reformer in higher education. Um, he 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 really kind of threatened to resign from the presidency of Brown unless the board would back him with with these reforms that he proposed. And and they knew what an effective leader he was, and they backed him. But uh, what he proposed at that time in many instances was a little bit too expensive to carry out. And some of these reforms didn't actually take place until after the Civil War. But that's that's what Wayland did and led in so many other ways in the community and in Baptist life. And uh, I might call him one of the earliest public intellectuals mm. in the United States. Mm. He he term, was he yeah. was not a creator of new thoughts, was not a pace setter in that sense, but could take very complex ideas from academia, from philosophy, from theology, from economics, from political science, and make them uh, intelligible to a, a wider audience. He was kind of a philosophical middleman, and right. that was one of the, I think, uh, the keys to his effectiveness. Brad, uh, say just a word about why biography is important. You've given us three very vivid portraits of these really crucial people in our own history. History seems to me, a lot of people don't like it. It's boring, it's dry and dusty. But we know that isn't true when you really dig into these lives. How can people get a handle on history today? And why is it important for us to look at the biographies of great men and women of the past? Well, biographies will resonate with the story of our lives uh, or make us think about and reflect upon our lives. We can find ways that we're similar or have common struggles and then how we're different as as well. Um, there's something powerful about one's own personal story. In the Baptist tradition, we call that a testimony. 
these are more than testimonies, but but each of these had their own journals, their own autobiographies, their memoirs. And uh, it wasn't just a chronicling of their lives, but um, in a sense of the great Christian tradition of biography or autobiographies, there's this sense of being on this journey of faith and that God is a part of that in leading them and there's, there's great trust along the way. You know, we learn about the great people and their accomplishments and their leadership, but we see the more common side that we can connect with as well. And I still think that that's how people can connect with history is, is through biography. Today, when we're taping this, is about two or three days after the announcement of the most recent Pulitzer Prizes. And I know the one in biography this year is uh, Cherno's book on Washington, a new yeah. biography. And you would think, can another book be written about George Washington? <laughs> well, one has, and that will resonate with, with a lot of people. And here is an academic historian who has written a book that's going to have wide appeal to a, to a larger audience. And so biographies can, can have that role in, in our lives. And I think this is one of the reasons I wanted to tell the stories of these people uh, as, as, as brief as, they, as these portraits have been. Yankee Ingenuity and the Grace of God, Portraits of Three Antebellum Baptists. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. J. Bradley Creed. He is the provost of Sanford University, a wonderful storyteller and historian, and today you've made come alive for us these great figures, John Leland, Anne Hazeltine Judson, and Francis Whalen. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you, Timothy. And now here with a special announcement is our Beeson Director of Admissions, Sherry Brown. I want to invite everyone that is interested in Beeson Divinity School to our preview day. The preview day for this fall is Friday, September the 16th. It's a day-long opportunity for you to learn more information about Beeson than you might be reading on the website, but also an opportunity to attend a class, to meet with current students over lunch. We also give tours that day. We also give you opportunities to meet with faculty. Most importantly, if you have not yet completed your application interview, that's a great time to do that as well and just to have an opportunity to spend the whole day with our staff, faculty, and students. You can register online at our website, which is www.beesondivinity.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.